This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author David Graeber is joined by education debt researcher Jason Wozniak for a conversation about the phenomena of meaningless jobs. This event was recorded on June 12, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. And uh, David, it's an honor to be up here with you. Oh, um, if you don't mind me likewise. saying. Yeah, you, uh, you shaped my life in some strong ways, both in, with really? research, but also because of your instigation and particip- participation in Occupy so, in New York. So. No, it wasn't just me. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you were a strong force. So um, I wanted to start off just a little bit more about your bio, if you don't mind, sure. and kind of situate the book. Uh, in terms of how this book fits within the corpus of your other published work. Mm. Um, not too far long ago, you published a book on bureaucracy. I, yeah, I did. Yeah, and this book mm-hmm. kind of seems like an outgrowth of that in a certain way. I don't know, maybe you can talk about that. Um, sure. But also, too, if you could tie it up with some of your activism and your own experiences, because you talk a little bit about it in the book with bullshit jobs. So. Yeah. Um, Yes, uh, it, it, it's kind of a compliment to the bureaucracy book. The bureaucracy book is really a collection of essays. I originally wanted to call it Three Essays on Bureaucracy. I, I had a really bland title in mind, and uh, the publisher basically said no, under no conditions. And I, I couldn't understand why they're so adamant. It turned out it was actually for bureaucratic reasons. Uh, <laughs> apparently, um, apparently, the since most stores are chain stores now, chain stores will... If, if the word essay appears anywhere on the cover of a book, they will only buy it for those branches that have essay sections. So you, you'll get half the sales because they won't, you know, half of them won't buy it. So I was strictly forbidden to actually use the word essay. They tried to take it out of the preface. Uh, I, I was supposed to pretend it was a real book, but it's not, you know, so it was, anyway. Um, but it's, it's still, I was musing on bureaucracy, and, and you could say that that was about the experience of bureaucracy from the outside, and this is more the experience of bureaucracy from the inside. But in a way, this book is really a complement to the debt book in that sometimes I say uh, it's kind of like the Karl Rove approach to anti-capitalism. Uh, Karl Rove you know, famously said that the, strategically you, have to, you don't attack your opponent's weaknesses, you attack their strengths. You try to knock out their strongest suit. And it seems to me that the strongest suit um, in the case of capitalism nowadays is really moral. You know, like practical arguments are are growing weaker and weaker in the sense that, it, you know, maybe 50 years ago, you could, 30 years ago even, it was possible to say, well, yeah, capitalism creates all sorts of inequalities and injustices, but, you know, number one, well, it creates rapid technological change. We're all going to be on Mars in a few years. There's going to be all these new technologies that'll make life. You know, that's not true anymore. You have technological stagnation. Um, you know, people would say, well, 
it might create inequality, but it, uh, it creates such abundance that every, even the poorest people can pretty much be guaranteed that their children are going to be doing much better than they did. Well, that's clearly not true anymore. Um, and then finally, you know, it creates stability. It creates a strong middle class, and that creates p political stability, and clearly not the case anymore. Um, so, so all of the old arguments for capitalism basically have gone by the boards. And there's really two different types of arguments left. One is nothing else is possible. You know, the only alternative is North Korea. Um, and, and number two is, is moral, basically. And I think that people really do believe certain things because this has been drilled into them. Um, that, and, and debt and work seem to be the most powerful ones. People really believe that you have to pay your debts. I mean, rich people don't believe this, but poor people believe this. Uh, I mean, rich people never, I've been, mean, you know, just try to get your, your publisher to pay you, you know, forget it. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, most people who are not capitalists you know, re have, feel it doesn't really matter the reasons you took, uh, undertook the debt. You're a bad person if you don't pay it. Anybody who doesn't pay their debts is a deadbeat and deserves what they get. And in a similar way, people really seem to believe that if you're not working harder than you'd like to be working at something you don't much enjoy, preferably for under the you know supervision of someone you dislike, um, you know if this is not the case, then you're just a bad person and you don't deserve public relief. You don't deserve the love and solidarity of your fellows. And 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 those ideas are really deeply embedded and powerful. So you, you could say that insofar as this projects of research are an extension of, of activist impulses, the, the debt book was trying to attack one. You know, it starts with why is it that people feel that you know, the morality of debt trumps anything else? It starts with this conversation I had where you know, I'm describing you know, policies that are just killing babies in Madagascar and horrible things happening. And, you know, and the answer is always, well, yeah, but people have to pay their debts. I mean, come on. And, you know, and these are even nice people who would like never dream of, of say, uh, defending the killing of babies under any other circumstance. You know, we'll defend it when it comes to like paying back the IMF. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So how did that happen? So really, that's the question I'm trying to answer in that book, to understand where that morality comes from, where its power comes from, and, and what we can do about it. And, and this one is very similar. And ultimately, it's an attack on, on the moral status of work because what it's really about is how did we get to a situation where people seem to believe that any work, even if it's, it's completely pointless, is better than no work at all. Yeah, yeah so I want to come back to those connections with debt and, and the ways that it enforces and coerces us into bullshit work. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe before we do that, we can talk a little bit about what you mean by bullshit jobs. Because yeah, okay. I think the first thing that perhaps people see when they see the title is, oh no, do I have a bullshit job? Um, so maybe if you could okay. talk, talk about like how you describe what makes a job a bullshit job, right. and then we'll get kind of into the, those sure. connections. Well, well, the first thing to say about that is if, if you don't know if you have a bullshit job, then probably you don't, you know, because it, it's pretty obvious if you got one. And part of the definition, the part of the definition is, is, is that, you know, a bullshit job is a job so completely pointless or even pernicious that even the person doing it can't justify its existence. So it's a job that you secretly believe shouldn't exist. 
the very best doesn't need to exist, probably shouldn't exist at all. If this job were to disappear, either it would make no difference whatsoever, or the world might be a slightly better place. Um, and a lot of people do believe that about their jobs. But it's also the bullshit element is, is the fact that you can't admit that is part of the condition of having the job, you know, is, is that you have to play along with the pretense that there's a reason for this job to exist. Which is why, for example, when you poll people in a room, say, does anybody have a bullshit job? You don't want to say that, right? Because obviously you can't. So if you, you, know, if you say, does anyone now have a bullshit job? People will be very tentative. If you say, have you ever had a bullshit job? You know, pretty much half the people or more will put up their hands. It's interesting because <laughs> with debt too, people are really hesitant to talk about debt in yeah. public. And yeah, yeah that's, they're both things that common experiences that because of this strange moral grip, nobody can talk about or compare with each other. That, you know, when we did um, the first big debt assemblies after yeah. Occupy, it was one of the, it was this breakthrough that nobody had ever talked about it before. And people were suddenly discovering, like, well, what do you do when the collection people come? You know, what, what do you say when they call you on the phone? And everybody has their own little strategies. And suddenly they're all comparing notes and realizing that everyone's in the same situation. But everybody thinks it's like their secret chain. Yeah. Don't realize that everyone else they know has actually had the same thing happen to them. And so in that regard, I think like you're doing us a huge uh, favor in the sense that you're getting us to talk about something in a collective manner that typically we are forced to live in isolation and suffer through. Yeah, and, and part of the whole thing about having a bullshit job is like, can I talk about it? Like, often people will say like, I'll ask them, well, do other people in the office know that you're sitting there and, you know, making cat memes all day and or playing fruit mahjong and not actually doing And they're like, you know what, I don't really know. And does your supervisor know? And I think she must, you know. People will like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to admit. And there's all these taboos in work. I mean, even when you have a most benevolent boss or supervisor, you can't really talk about certain right. things. I had this experience when I was uh, in graduate school where um, I was a research assistant for this guy. He was a Marxist professor who is an expert in workplace resistance, right? So I figured if there's anybody I can be honest with, you know, this must be the guy, right? Um, so, uh, you know, he gave me the timesheet, told me how to fill it out, and I said, okay, how much should I lie? Or, you know, how much can I lie? And he kind of looked at me like I was a creature from Mars. Um, so I was like, well, sorry, never mind, yeah. Um, you know, and of course I lied, but, but it, was, I mean, it was amazing that you like, even this guy, you couldn't actually just be out with it. Totally, yeah. Uh -huh. So kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but like one of our friends in common, uh, George Kofinsis, oh, yeah. talks George. a lot about this need when he's talking about debt to, um, you know, come out of the closet type thing. And, and so it's, it's so important from a political organizing perspective, mm. both against debt and bullshit work, I think. Yeah. And I think you're helping us kind of step out. Yeah. I hope so. And, and one of the things that the, the piece originally, the reason it seemed to go crazy was exactly that. No one is allowed to talk about this. I mean, just to go background how I wrote this, I was going through a phase where it was right after I wrote the debt book, and I realized that you know, if you say something that people consider interesting and original, the world will conspire to ensure you never do that again. Um, you know, the, the normal course of events will be you will be expected to give the same talk, the same write the same essay, do sort of variations of the same book over and over and over again. In fact, if you really want to cash in, you kind of have to do that. So if I wanted to get rich, I guess the way, that's what I would have done. Because, you know, I wrote a book about money. 
people with money are very interested in the topic. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I could have, like, actually ended up talking to hedge funds and stuff like that, and they probably would have laid. But, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And, uh, so I said I'm going to do exactly the opposite. I'm going to go off and I'm going to, like, take every crazy rant that I've ever, like, you know, wished I could publish and no one would ever touch with a 10-foot pole. And I'm, I'm going to find a place to get it out there. <laughs> and, and a lot of pieces came out of that, and many have been probably mercifully forgotten but some of them, you know, like really went crazy. And this one was just insane. Um, I'd always wondered about it because I, I kept meeting people. You know, because I'm not from a academic or let alone professional managerial background. I mean, I, I, I come from a working class family. They're kind of working class intellectuals, but, but um, in a way that made it worse because, um, you know, I... I had this sort of classical background, and they knew all this stuff, but I didn't act like the sort of person who should be here, and and it just made people really uncomfortable. Uh, so so I always feel like an outsider in, in these environments. So of course, what do I do? You play the anthropologist. Like that's what I am. So I'm sort of oh, tell me more about your your interesting office job. You know, what do you actually do all day? You know. So so I'd ask people these things um, when I'd meet them, and and very often when I ask people what they do. They would just say, oh, nothing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I was like, all oh, right, they're just being modest. You know, what do you really do? Come. And after a few drinks and, you know, um, keep it up. And finally they admit, actually, you know, I meant that literally. I actually do nothing. <laughs> I, I pretend, I, maybe I work an hour a day. Maybe I work an hour a week, you know. Um, I take a few phone calls. I pretend to work. And, and I was like, how many people are there like this? So I wrote this crazy piece. There's this sort of anarcho-feminist journal called Strike, and they wanted me to contribute something. They said, oh, write anything you like. And I was like, really, anything? Uh, okay. Um, here's one that no one would ever possibly publish. So I wrote up this piece um, called On the Phenomena of Bullshit Jobs. This was back in 2013. And I said, all right, imagine that this is really common. This is what I said to myself. Maybe this is the reason that we're not working 15-hour weeks like we were supposed to by now. This is, you know, why we don't have lives of leisure and comfort that that everybody was imagining in the, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and um, you know, maybe they've just like made up these jobs to keep us working. I was inspired a little bit by Orwell, who had this idea that they are constantly making up useless work to keep people off the streets. You know, because the elites are so afraid of common people, they think that if they're not busy all the time, they'll just get up to no good. And there's quite clear evidence that, like in the 60s and 70s, that's what people in ruling class circles were really afraid of. There were think tanks being assembled to say, what are we going to do about the problem of automation, you know? Um, I mean, we think it's bad now. What's going to happen when the entire working class turns into hippies? <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. So, so, all right, so there's a lot of self-conscious reflection about this. So I thought, all right, um, maybe they just sort of let this happen. I mean, it wasn't planned, but, but it's clearly, you know, somebody felt that this was convenient. So I wrote this piece saying, well, this is the reason we don't have a 15-hour week. The ruling class has figured out that a happy, content population of lots of leisure is a threat. Um, it's as if people were just making up jobs to keep us working. And I threw out various ideas um, about this and about the social and political effects. And, and as I say, it was kind of a joke. I didn't really... In my head, I was thinking maybe there's 10 to 15% of jobs are really that bad. Um, this piece just went completely crazy after I put it out. Um, 
I think within two weeks it had been translated into 12 or 13 different languages. It was coming out in Korean, Estonian. Since then, it's like, I think it's up to 20 now. Or, uh, yeah, it just came things. out in Persian. Yeah. Did you know they have a bullshit job problem in Iran? No, yeah. <laughs> people were talking about yeah. it in Cuba when I was there. Were they? Yeah. 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 In a different way, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, those are old-fashioned. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so the, the piece went crazy. It, it, it started appearing in, in newspapers around the world. You know, they got reprinted. First in Australia. They have a fascination of bullshit jobs in Australia. It always comes out first there. And... Um, and then people started writing confessions. In, I started going through the comment section. They were like full of these people saying, oh my God, it's, it's really true. I, I'm a corporate lawyer. I contribute nothing to society. I, I'm miserable all the time. Uh, and, and I was like, my God, this, I, I had no idea it was that true. And eventually one thing led to another. And there was a survey and then another survey and one in, UK, one in Holland, and the UK one found that 37% of all workers were convinced their jobs like didn't need to exist, uh, contributed nothing. Um, in Holland, it was 40%. And those are the ones who were sure. You know, it was about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of them were, you know, 13% said maybe, I don't know, mm -hmm. it could be useful for something, I can't figure out what, but I'm not. Um, Okay, so only 50% were absolutely sure their job had any reason to exist at all. Which, if you think about it, that's amazing. Because, like, I mean, there's so many jobs, no one would possibly think that, right? If you're a bus driver, you might not like your job very much, but you definitely know there's a reason why there should be buses. If you're a nurse, if you're a mechanic, if you're, you know, if you're the guy giving information in the train station. I mean, or, and actually service workers, too. I mean... Like if you're serving coffee, I never got, when I later solicited testimonies, I never got anybody saying like, oh, I sell selfie sticks. Selfie sticks are stupid. Why do people buy that stupid shit? You know, that's not what people said. Um, you know, they assume that if people want something, who am I to judge? So the people, you know, were almost all clerical, administrative. I mean, there's also guys like corporate lawyers, telemarketers, but they're all office workers. And, and that made me think, okay, so if that's the case, and there's so many people clearly not in bullshit jobs, then pretty much anybody who's in an office, who you're looking at them saying, I wonder if that guy's secretly thinking that his job is bullshit. Yeah, he is. I mean, 40%, right? I mean, pretty much everyone who might be thinking that almost certainly is, if the statistics are correct. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons maybe it hits such a nerve right now, and this is really well covered in the book, is because you link the proliferation of bullshit jobs with neoliberalism and financial capital yeah. and and or the commodification of everyday life. So maybe you can just kind of elaborate briefly, because I know it's a big topic, yes. about how <laughs> neoliberalism and the growth of bullshit jobs are connected. Yes, because the period um, that we're talking about is basically... I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but it's really picked up since the 80s, 90s. And it corresponds to the period where they talk about the rise of the service economy. And I think that's significant because if you ask people, well, why aren't we working a 20-hour week or a 15-hour week? You know, they all, if you look at the jobs that existed back in the 1920s and 30s, most of them have been automated away. You know, the number of farmers, the number of factory workers has precipitously declined, uh, domestic servants. No, uh, we could have uh, been living that life of leisure that people predicted. But 
there's a common wisdom about this, which is wrong. Uh, but the common wisdom is that, well, you know, we kind of made a collective choice. We had given the choice between more time off and more consumer toys. We seem to have gone for, you know, having serving each other, each other designer sushi and having nice iPhones and so forth and so on. Um, actually, this is completely wrong. I mean, if you look at where the new jobs are, they're almost none of them have to do with that sort of thing. In fact, um, service jobs, and that's the other you know, kind of accompanying idea, the rise of the service economy. We're all doing laundry for each other or serving each other coffee, basically. Um, actually, they break down the numbers in such a way it might seem like service is increasing. But that's because they have like the farm sector, the industry sector, the service sector, um, and then maybe finance. But um, what they're disguising there is information workers. And, and, and if you actually look at the sort of clerical, administrative, supervisory jobs, you know, the sort of bullshit sector where, where we constantly get people reporting themselves to be in bullshit jobs, um, that's grown a lot. But the, the service, Real services, like you know, giving people haircuts and you know, pressing their shorts, that kind of services. Um, that's stayed exactly the same. It's actually been a constant 20% of the workforce for about 150 years. It hasn't changed at all. You know, people have moved out of domestic service into shops, but other than that, it's the same. Um, all right, so so it's not service. It's it's this sort of paper pushing domain. So the question is, how does that happen? And there's various mechanisms going on. Um, and I can't describe all of them here, but I think that the easiest way to think about it is that, first of all, in terms of finance, well, you know, Marxists will always say this. Actually, the two people who always object on principle to this premise, very interestingly, are, are free market libertarians and doctrinaire Marxists. <laughs> they both say exactly the same thing. But capitalism is such that in a competitive marketplace, a corporation cannot you know, employ people that they do not need to. They have to exploit them. Um, if you're a Marxist or they, you know. Um, it's assumed that capitalism really does work the way it was supposed to work in the 19th century. And either whether you love it or you hate it, you assume that. Now, the thing is that capitalism obviously doesn't work the way it did in the late 19th century. Um, what we've got is a financialized system where most profits are derived from rents of some kind or another, or creating debt. And the logic of, of collecting and distributing debt is totally different than the logic of a series of, you know, sort of mid-sized manufacturing commercial firms all in competition with each other, which is what people like to imagine when they talk about capitalism in the classical sense. Um, when you have, and you know, we got to the point where even manufacturing corporations, you know, when you're talking about General Motors or General Electric, they're actually making most of their money from their financial divisions. In some cases, all of their profits come from the financial division. So they're not actually making money off the car, making the cars and selling the cars, they're making it off financing the cars. Okay, that's why they crashed in 2008. So, so if that's the case, well, the basic logic of finance is really different than the logic of classical capitalism. It's a lot more like feudalism, you know. When I was in college, they taught me, I was taught by sort of classic Althusserian Marxists, but oh, wow. um, yeah, they taught me that, you know, reading Perry Anderson and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, capitalism, they, you know, is based on exploitation through the wage, right? But feudalism is direct to political extraction, you know, that's when you're just taking the money. And, and basically that's what capitalism 
or what they call capitalism now comes down to. I actually tried to get an economist for, for years. Every economist I met, I would say, okay, how much every month on average does the fire sector extract from the average American household? If you look at finance, insurance, and real estate. You know, how, you know when you're paying your rent, your insurance, your mortgage, your this, your that, um, your student loans, you know, what's the average? How much, what percentage of their income is this directly taken in that way? And no one can tell me. You know, I've heard estimates anywhere from 15 to 50%. Nobody knows. Um, you can get statistics on anything else, but this one, it's all over the map, you know. Um, so, so, but nonetheless, that's the motor of capital. They're just taking the money. And, and first of all, if you, if you have that kind of quasi-feudal system, well, that, the logic is very different. First of all, the relation of government and, and um, the private firms are very different. You know, in a classic capitalism, the government basically exists to guarantee your property relations so that you can exploit people, right? But in the... In this system, the government's directly involved. You know, you're taking it through the courts. You know, if you don't pay your debts, they'll come after you. Um, it's 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 a situation where the diff the relation between private and public becomes very blurred. It, it's I, I pointed this out in my bureaucracy book that you know I had this realization. I was having this endless phone call arguing with my bank because they had installed some security thing that made it impossible for me to access my money uh, from overseas. And, and after you know, this endless bureaucratic runaround, I, I asked someone, uh, why are you doing this? Like, this is insane. And, and they said, well, you know, I know it's really hard, but, 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 but there's all these government regulations. Ultimately, our hands are tied, right? And they always say this if you complain about bureaucracy in the private sector, right? There's government regulations. But then, I realized, yeah, but like, who writes these regulations? Basically the banks, you know? They actually write the regulations, give money to the politicians, it's called lobbying, it's basically institutionalized bribery. And they say, here's the laws we'd like to, you know, we'd like to have. And they say, well, I don't know, this is a little extreme. And they do a process of negotiation, they move it around. But basically the banks write the laws under which they're regulated. So like, is that public or is that private? You know, it's fusing. They're becoming the same thing. It's a sort of seamless web. All right, so in that situation, the entire logic works really, really differently than it does under classical capitalism. It's much more like feudalism, where, you know, politics and economics are kind of the same thing. Uh, where And makes perfect sense. If you grab a pile of loot, which is basically what's going on here, that you want to distribute it to lots of flunkies and retainers. And in fact, what you hear about a lot when you ask how these bullshit jobs happen is that the internal logic of these increasingly large and bureaucratic corporations involves this kind of almost feudal politics of, I call it managerial feudalism, yeah, of, of where they call it empire building, is the phrase they use in the corporations themselves. An executive tries to get as many people as possible working under them. And it's, it's funny because the image they want to put out is, uh, you know, we're lean and mean, we try to trim the fat, you know, CEOs, executives are celebrated for the number of people they can fire. But that's the actual useful workers, you know, the productive workers. So if you're like, a, you know, UPS or something like that, you know, yeah, you downsize the drivers and you speed them up and you tailorize them and you make their lives a living hell, right? And then you, you're 
celebrated for doing this. But there in the office, you're just accumulating more and more useless flunkies whose entire job is to like, you know, design the cartoons for your corporate reports, or there's another, it's a kind of equivalent in feudalism of some guy who's just there to polish your stirrups or tweeze your mustache before the joust, you know, because the, these big corporate meetings are kind of the equivalent of the, uh, there are the high corporate ritual jousts where you go out there and you throw reports at other people. I mean, I've, I've heard people say that they've got like, you know, 12,000 pounds, you know, what's that, like $15,000, yeah. just to write a three-page report that the guy never even used. You just throw them on the table, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the, so, so the, this is where the money's actually going. And, and if you got a pile of loot, this is the other thing, and this is like one of the best stories I got, and I can't reveal who this person was, or they'd get in big trouble. But he was working for a big insurance firm that was giving up PPI. It's a little bit like the asbestos uh, stuff in America. They have this huge pot of money that they're supposed to give to people, and they have to find the people who are owed the money. So he said they would systematically mistrain all their employees. They would like give them wrong instructions. They would get to try to. They would put them in the wrong offices. They would put the offices in the wrong cities. They would just do everything wrong intentionally because the longer it took to actually distribute the money, the more they got to keep. You know, so, so it's actually having lots of people doing useless things is actually in the interest of people when it's this kind of redistributive financial system. Part of what I find really fascinating about this book is it's not just a critique of bullshit jobs. It's a critique of work and the ideology of work. And You notice that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, to make that argument in the United States is very significant where, yeah. you know, we have this whole work ethic, so-called work ethic. Um, and the other side of that is, and you see this in other people that critique work, whether it be Kathy Weeks or going all the way back to, like, someone like Thoreau or someone, um, is the praise of idleness. Yeah. And idleness, not necessarily to do nothing, but this idea that we need leisure time to become full human beings. And I think like this is really strong in your work as well. I think you pick up on both the critique of the ideology of work, but also the praise and defense of we need free time. Yeah. So maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I w one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to try to understand, well, first of all, the notion of, like, you're on my time. This is something that drove me crazy ever since the very first job I ever had, uh, which I describe in the book. I was a dishwasher. I was 15 years old, you know. And I got this job at a local restaurant. I was washing dishes. And it was a bunch of kids. We were all about the same age. We'd all been hired at the same time. And, you know, being 15-year-old boys, as soon as they brought in a big rush of dishes, we were like, okay, you know, we're going to be the best dishwashers ever. <laughs> we're to like, you know, totally take on this pile of dishes and make it so clean so fast, the boss is going to be totally impressed. You know? So we like whipped into like, you know, super um, action mode and we did all the dishes in record time, sparkling pile of dishes and we just kicked back. Like, mm, yeah. uh, and the boss comes in and says, what the hell are you guys just sitting around for? And we're like, but look, we did the dishes real fast, you know? And they're like, yeah, I don't care. Because <laughs> you're on my time. Get to work. I said, well, there's nothing to do. I said, clean the baseboards. And we already cleaned the baseboards. We'll clean them again, you know? And, 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 you know, this was this sense of primordial injustice, you know, it's like, but we did work so well so fast, we're supposed to be rewarded, we really just wanted to smile, you know, and, and, and instead we're like, you know, forced to do like basically punishment detail, you know, doing this work that was completely unnecessary. And I realized that bullshit jobs are like jobs where, you know, the entire thing is like cleaning the baseboard. This is the worst part of any real job, right, is, is pretending to work when you don't have to, but these entire jobs are like that. Um, and, and, so I'm trying to figure out, well, where does that come from? 
Because if you look at history, it's not a very common notion. You don't see people in ancient Greece or Rome saying, hey, you're on my time, you know, get to work. That's not a concept. I mean, you might see people saying, it's best to keep your slaves busy or they might get in trouble. You know, um, actually, I, uh, someone just sent me a Hebrew law saying it's illegal to do that. It's like wow. it is sinful to make your servants work when there's nothing to do, just so they don't get in trouble. Yeah, wow. yeah. <laughs> so, it's the first piece of evidence for make work. I've been trying to like write a history of, of, of make work, and it's very hard to do, right? Wow. But but that was the first evidence I've, I've seen. Right yeah. This uh, is, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, go on. No, I was just going to say this is also tied to what you call the spiritual violence of yeah. bullshit jobs, and and at one point um you make reference to like part of the spiritual violence is time disciplining mm. like when we're our time is always controlled and yes. we're coerced and we're disciplined it's a, it's a type of violence and then you, on the other side of that is you say we need to steal back our time yes i mean i could go into this for some uh but but um i'll say this much one of my very favorite essays when i i first read it was um historical essays an essay called Time, labor, work discipline, and industrial capitalism, which doesn't sound that sexy, but it's actually a great essay by E.P. Thompson. And what he's trying to describe is, is how the notion that time is something separate from work and which can measure work came about. Because in traditional societies, and as an anthropologist, I'm well aware of this, time was measured by work rather than the other way around. So it was impossible to talk about how much time work takes um, because you know, that's your units of time were units of work. And like in, when I was in Madagascar, people still use that language sometimes. Um, they would, you'd say, how far away is something? And they would say, oh, it's about three boilings of rice away, you know. So, so it takes about as long, three times as long as it takes to cook a meal to walk there. Yeah. Um, so, so this is very, very common. And, you know, there's, so there's an assumption you work at a certain pace, and that pace is, is, is usually somewhat leisurely. And, and time is, is measured in that. Um, and there's a sense of absolute time, but, but it has nothing to do with us. Usually it has to do with the gods or something, astrology. You know? um, time for us is kind of messier. And it changes from year to year. If you have a sundial, right, then, then in the winter, an hour is half the length that it is during the summer, right? Um, so everything varies and is relative. Now, now, to create something like modern work regimes, you have to invent both physical technologies like clocks that are the same all year long, and you also have to create social technologies. And, and as certain people have pointed out, Moses Finley, my favorite classicist, pointed out that um, you know, all of this would have seemed totally insane if you were an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman. You know, like the idea that you could buy someone's time, that's just weird. Um, in fact, actually, um, wage labor as we now conceive it, essentially comes out of slavery because like that's the closest people could come you know okay here's a potter he's making pots i can buy the pots if i'm an ancient ancient greek you know i can buy the potter you know slavery was an institution but the idea that you could like buy the potter's time the only way that people could see that would be like well i could rent him as a slave you know but nobody's going to rent themselves out as a slave uh, nobody would do that i mean the only people who would rent themselves out as a slave is somebody who's already a slave so actually you know, wage labor comes from slave rentals, and this is very common around the world. I mean, I've, I've seen this in the records in Madagascar. It was very common, like, Swahili Coast in Malacca and Southeast Asia. All, you know, you have these port cities where there's, uh, you know, all these slave 
hoarders, but they're actually working for, for money. And you pay them, and then like half the money goes to like their owner and half of it they keep. Um, so, so that's what wage labor was like for most of history. It was like people who were formerly not free who did it. Um, and, and anybody who was free would totally avoid this. Um, so, so you have the social thing to overcome. And the way to overcome it is this weird conception, I'm not selling myself, I'm selling my time. You know, because time is now something detachable from the self. Um, you know, Aristotle, I always say this, if Aristotle were here, he would say like most, thing, most Americans were actually slaves because the difference between selling yourself and renting yourself is like, you know, a sort of technical distinction at best. Uh, okay, so how does this happen? It happens where they bring in clock time. And at first, clock time was owned by the you know, factory owners, right? Uh, they actually wouldn't allow workers to come in with a pocket watch because they were always pay, playing fast and loose with the clock, right? So, so this shows how... how what started to happen is people started having battles over time, and workers started demanding better hours. They started demanding, you know, overtime. This, um, all, almost all these early labor battles had to do with time. As a result, and this is like a little bit like I describe in debt, where they start arguing about who owes what to whom, and suddenly the notion of debt goes from something used by the masters to control their serfs to something that everybody's arguing about. No, you owe us, you know. Um, but the logic of debt extends, and the same thing happens to time. Like time, beco it becomes natural and assumed that time, you know, your time does belong to someone else while you're working. If you demand that, you know, you over time, if you demand that um, leisure time, time off, lunch time, so forth and so on. Uh, so, so you accept the logic, and then logic becomes further entrenched. And then we get up to the point where, you know, if if people see like city workers lazing around, oh, suddenly we were all thinking like the boss and saying, hey, that person's lazing around in my time, That's he's rubbing me off, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't want, I just want to touch on this, and I think there's a, there's a natural segue here, actually. So we're in a university setting, and um, yes. the Greek word for leisure time is skole, which is ah, also where we get the word school, school from. School, really? Yeah. But and is it scholar, too? Yeah, in contemplation, uh, but also I suspension. I always thought scholars was from scolio. I'm writing in the margins. Yeah. yeah that's a different thing. No, but what's interesting <laughs> was that school was thought of as, as a place where you would be free from the pressures of work. Uh, um, and I, the reason I bring this up is because in your book, you talk a lot about education, either explicitly or implicitly. And, and I, just really quickly, like on the one hand, um, and this goes back to the point you made earlier about this isn't natural. Mm. Like you make it really clear, like we have to learn to accept and take up and somehow take part in bullshit jobs. So there's a whole socialization process yeah, yeah. that you hit on. And the other side of that though is that the universities themselves are increasingly becoming places of massive bullshit jobs. Like they're just everywhere, right? Yeah. So well, yeah, they, there's, there's bullshit jobs, and then there's the bullshitization of the actual bullshit, jobs exactly, and the related yeah. phenomena. Yeah, yeah, which is also <laughs> really strong. And I think you t you, the, the the word bullshitization, where like K through 12 teachers in the United States mm. are constantly getting it from the private and the public. And, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they turn their half their bullshit, time, right? It, like, no, yeah, and, and it's bad in, in up higher education, but not nearly as bad. And then nurses yeah. too, right? Yeah. Um, they have to spend like half their time now filling out forms. I mean, it's and this is true here, and it's true even in socialized systems everywhere. It's like this administrative takeover. And and actually, I have a theory about this, which has to do with digitization, which I tried out on the Bank of England the other day. Mm -hmm. um, they were kind of into it. Um, Basically, 
there, it's a confluence between a social factor and a technological factor. The social factor is they just hire more and more pointless administrators and those guys have to make up something to do. So if you're at a major university, you know, now that everybody's managers have to think of themselves as executives, to lure them in, you have to offer them like this little army of minions, you know. So, so it's not just that you get to be the vice provost or they make up some fancy title for you, but you get to have like, you know, five, three, four, five flunkies that are assigned to you. And they give you the flunkies and then they just, you decide what they're gonna do, right? Because the point is to have them. Uh, now I have five people, what am I gonna do with them? Well, basically they make up bullshit for me to do. Um, so suddenly I have all these time allocation forms that I'm supposed to fill out to give this person an excuse to exist. Um, this happens, this is like managerial feudalism, all these intermediary roles get made up and then they have to figure out some, this is why movies suck, this is another thing which uh, goes into in the book is that there's all these intermediary level executives and they all fuck with the script and uh, script writers talk about this all the time. It used to be just two or three but now there's like 18 of these guys and like, you know, they're all brainless and they all, oh, maybe you should change this around and, like before long the whole thing is mush. But anyway, so in schools, they make up, you know, the, the bullshit jobs sort of leads to the bullshitization of real jobs but there's also the role of computers, and this is something which I think people don't really appreciate. Um, I had some sort of eureka moment when I realized, uh, you know, if you look at caring labor, like imagine, all right, here's caring labor on one side, here's manufacturing on the other, as the two sort of extreme possible forms of labor. Um, most labor has, even working class labor has really been more caring labor than manufacturing. There's never been a time that most people have worked in factories, but you know, we have this paradigm of, of the factory worker as the, as the real worker, the sort of archetypal worker, which is have very pernicious in various ways I discuss in the book, but I won't go into that. So, okay, here's manufacturing, here's sort of health, education, take, taking care of people in various ways. Now, if you apply digitization, AI, robotics, whatever you want to um, call it, to manufacturing, well, you know, that will increase productivity as we all know. Even if you're sorting fruit, you know, there's not much preparation involved. It's gonna roll it in there and it'll analyze it and, and, and it will tell you which one is ripe and rotten and, and, and fresh. And they've, they've gotten very far with this kind of stuff. Uh, it is true. So, so anything involving physical products, uh, yes. It is true that technology like that will make it more productive, means you have to employ less people, and it means that they have what they call technological deflation. The real cost of an iPhone keeps going down, they just keep adding like more expensive stuff to it or making you know, more advanced copies of it. Um, so it doesn't see, you know, it seems to stay the same cost. All right, so, so all of that is true. However, I would say that if you apply technology, the same technologies to the caring sector, it has exactly the opposite effect. And the reason for that is that in order to do so, you have to transform qualitative interactions and experiences into a form that the computer can actually recognize. Now, in order to do that, you have to like, you know, fill out a million forms, and, and the computer can't do that. Only humans can actually do that translation work. And that's why I have to like, you know, be sitting there putting my syllabus into the appropriate format so that they can compare it with all the other syllabuses. Because fruit, you just roll it in the basket, you know. Um, but, you know, this thing, I have to spend hours at it, you know, like making it like compatible with everybody else's syllabus and for no reason. So they can pretend that the computer can compare them, which can't really happen anyway. All right, so, so, so this is, so if you combine, okay, so, so just to draw the parallel, it's a really perfect parallel. Uh, you know, so, so that means that 
health, education, caring labor in general, becomes less productive. And, and I've seen statistics, economically, this is what's happening. You know, and as a result of that becoming less productive, they have to hire more people. So it's true, more and more people are being hired in this. So there's less and less people working in manufacturing as it becomes more productive, it becomes much more profitable, at, even though wages are kind of going up on um, manufacturing, not nearly so much as the productivity is, um, and numbers going down. So they're making a killing in manufacturing now. At the same time, you know, it's exactly the opposite is happening in health and education. It's becoming less productive, therefore they have to hire more people to create the same product, and the price keeps going up. It's going up at twice the rate of inflation. Um, and, and in fact, profits are, are very hard to maintain in that section just because um, it's so unproductive, so they have to put a squeeze on wages. So what do you see all over the world, actually? The big labor struggles are precisely there. I mean, in, in England, we've seen strikes We've seen professors on strike. We've seen junior doctors on strike. We got the teacher strikes all over America. And when I was in France, they were saying nursing home workers are on strike. It's the first time in French history this ever happened. You know, so, so people in the caring sector are the ones who are being squeezed and who are fighting back. I call it the revolt of the caring classes, but that's a yeah. whole, whole no, that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I'd like to talk about resistance now. Yeah. Um, and then, like in a very kind of reductionist way, I, I hear you writing about um, resistance as, like on the one hand, we have to change the material conditions. We have to, we have to take apart capital. On the other hand, you use this term that I liked, um, we need to engage in what you call like spiritual warfare. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow, um, a long time ago I said that. Yeah. Now, how can you fight back against spiritual violence? That's exactly what, yeah. right. And so um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, collective resistance, because again, I think like individually, we're going to have trouble, but yeah. even though I think individually there's resistance everywhere, but collectively maybe you could talk about what we might do mm. and how we might imagine resistance, uh, i.e. the critique of capital, the taking down of capital, and then the spiritual warfare that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I thought that Occupy could be imagined as the kind of first stirrings of this revolt of the caring classes. And, and one of the things that I call for in the book, and I, I, I've developed this elsewhere, um, I actually had um, the terrifying responsibility that the Collage de France called me to give a talk on the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the events of May 68, oh. uh, which happened was in March, apparently. Mm -hmm. I, who knew? May, May 68 was actually in March. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so I had to say, so I'll have to say something, you know, I haven't said before. That's a, so I, I said, I know, I'll, I'll give my talk on the revolt of the caring classes. And um, I came up with a theory of, of caring labor. Um, sort of Spinozan feminism. I'll, I'll go into this in a moment. But something I've experienced very often is that if you're a male and you try to bring feminist theory into your work, male editors will try to cut it out again. Uh, this happens all the time. And they often like, it's almost like they see it as cultural appropriation. Oh, women will get upset. You know, you shouldn't go there. You know? um, but they'll come up with all these different reasons. But um, it's always male editors. Obviously, women editors don't mind. Uh, but in this case, it was um, the most ex creative excuse ever. I wanted to call the essay The Revolt of the Caring Classes. And the guy, it was Philippe Descola, actually, um, who was sponsoring me, um, said, oh, you know, there's a problem with the title. You can't say that in French. 
<laughs> there is no French word for that. You know? oh. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I said, no, really, they, they, you can't say caring labor. It means something else in French. And yeah, so I had to put out a contest to come up with the best French phrase. Um, I, the one I really liked, um, or someone who came up with um, Travail de coeur. Um, uh, so therefore, you could talk about the courgeoisie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wasn't my idea. It was actually Hollywood from New York. Anyway, um, but um, but what I argued is like we need to, a radical transformation in our ideas about what is the value of work, and I think that this any anti-capitalist movement has to reconceive what work and exploitation actually are. So. What had occurred to me is we have this very theological notion of work as creation. You either read, you know, Prometheus and Hesiod, if you look at the Bible, there's always the same kind of basic story. We are cursed with work because we imitated, we're, we're cursed to imitate God. You know, we tried to usurp God's power and we're being punished by God, who's always imagined as a creator, right? Uh, created the world out of nothing. Most gods exist with you know, work with existing materials, but like the Judeo-Christian God just goes puff, you know. And um, so, so we are being punished for our usurping God's power by our attempt to do so by being cursed to imitate God by creating our worlds, but in a really horrible way that hurts and is unpleasant. Um, this, is the, this is a theme that runs through almost all the theology of work. Work is supposed to be suffering and pain, but it's also supposed to be creative and productive. So we imagine work as production, and this, this goes for, it's very, very patriarchal, really. Um, even in the Bible, they spell it out very clearly. They say, you know, Adam, you must now produce your food and plow the fields and there'll be thorns and it'll be horrible and it'll be painful. Eve, I will multiply your pains in, in childbirth. But you know, what's childbirth called? It's called labor. So both, both are for basic primordial forms of work. And as in any patriarchal ideological system, you have this notion that you know, men do culturally what women do naturally. So women produce babies and men produce culture, right? Or produce products. So, so the word produce actually means to like put out, you know? Um, like, you know, you say he produced something from his mm. cloak. So, so the image is almost like women are like pushing out these babies, right? And it's painful labor, but you know, they come out fully formed somehow. And then men in the, this, again, this is sort of patriarchal, imagine, imagine, uh, imaginary, uh, the, the men are just sort of sort of pushing out products from the factories, you know, pump, car, car, car. And it's a sort of male childbirth, which is it's painful, but they just pop out fully formed. And um, all right, so, so, so this is the sort of, covert image lying behind the way we talk about production. And, and, and so, so there's this idea that work is basically production. And of course that's not true, right? Because most work isn't production. I keep having to like hammer away at people that otherwise sensible Marxists will always you know, say, well, you know, like a cup, you have to produce a cup. Um, you know, work is product making things. Um, and you know, yeah, that's true, you have to produce a glass, but you produce a glass once and you wash it like 10,000 times, right? You know, most work is not making things and tr radically transforming them, it's keeping them the same. You know, it's, it's maintaining them, taking care of them. It's, and, and that work, I mean, even most classic working class jobs, I have this example where there's a strike in um, London, there were tube workers, a ticket, they were shutting down all these ticket booths saying these people are unnecessary. There's a debate um, uh, among a bunch of Marxists about, well, are these bullshit jobs? Um, you know, obviously they're not necessary to produce surplus value for capitalism or they wouldn't be firing them, but you know, in a 
communist society, we wouldn't need to have people taking tickets for the subway. It would be free. So maybe they are bullshit jobs. Who needs them? And the reply by the actual train workers was to say, yeah, but that's, you have no conception what we actually do. You know, we don't give tickets. There's a machine for that. You know, what, we, what we're actually here for is like, well, you know, sure, get rid of the ticket, guys. Let's hope you don't lose anything. <laughs> you know, let's hope you don't, like, lose your child. Let's hope you, you know, don't have some drunk person annoying you. Let's hope that, you know, nothing breaks. Let's hope, and they went through all the different scenarios where you actually need these people. And they're all, it's basically they're taking care of people, you know. And, and you just never think of, like, working class people as mainly about caring labor. But that's basically what they're there to do, to, you know. And, and that's true on a million different levels. Almost all work involves a caring element. And, you know, feminist, um, economists will say that, you know, that like even when you're building a bridge, why do you build a bridge? Because you care that people can get across the river. I mean, uh, so, so all work is ultimately an extension of caring. So, so that idea of production makes, it, makes that invisible, you know, makes it give this sort of patriarchal paradigm of a guy hammering at a forge or, you know, a factory worker. But, but because of that, it was possible to reverse the, a lot of the gains of the workers' movement of the 19th century, and this is something I found really fascinating when I, was, when I was doing my research, was just how universal the labor theory of value had become in the 19th century. Well before Marx, people were already laying this out. You know, all, first it was the bourgeoisie using against the aristocrats. You guys are a bunch of parasites. We make stuff. That's real. All wealth has to be made. And then, of course, the workers turned it on the bourgeoisie. And before you know it, I mean, everybody sounds like a Marxist. And if you read politicians, like Abraham Lincoln sounds like a Marxist when he starts talking about economics. Everyone does, you know. All capital is derived from labor. You know, they're all saying stuff like this. And my very, very, and then when Marx himself comes along, you know, it, it becomes incredibly popular. My very favorite quote, I, I found this like 20 years ago somewhere, and I was like, someday I'm going to put this in a book. I, just need an excuse. I finally found it. I uh, found my excuse. It was a quote from a missionary who was traveling along the western frontier in the 1870s. And in 1880, he wrote a complaint, uh, something about how difficult it was to sort of bring people back to Christianity, because atheism was really popular on the Western frontier. And he wrote this thing saying, you know, it's impossible anywhere from Oregon to Arizona, you see a bunch of ranchers or miners talking together, you know, it's impossible not to hear either the atheist doctrines of Robert Ingersoll, he was this atheist pam pamphleteer who was really popular at the time, or the socialist theories of Karl Marx. I remember thinking, wow. That's something they left out of every cowboy movie I ever saw. <laughs> you know, you never see cowboys sitting around discussing the labor theory of value. You know? <laughs> but, and then I thought, well, you know, there's one. You know, actually, just one movie like that. Um, you ever see The Tre Treasure of the Sierra Madre? It actually starts with John Huston explaining the labor theory of value to Humphrey Bogart. Wow. They're both minors, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but that's kind of an exception. It was written by an anarchist, the original script. There you it was betrayed. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So, so we have one exception that was kind of left out. Um, or, but in fact, they were. You know, so everybody was talking this stuff. So, so essentially, there was a counteroffensive. Uh, Andrew Carnegie led the way. And so we got to do something about this. There's what they call the gospel of work. People really found the meaning in life from their work. Said, well, that's not going to work. Um, we, we, you've got to, you know, change people's minds and say that wealth really is a product of, of of capitalists and you know our entrepreneurs and 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 you're just like 
robots and machines like sitting there hammering all day, you're not really adding anything, and you should make out the meaning of your life from consumerism. And we actually were very self-conscious. It was like, sort of like the Mount Pelerin group that founded neoliberalism. They kind of got together and said, we're going to change people's minds, we're going to send people out, we're going to talk to you know, rotary clubs and you know, textbook groups and schools, and, 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 and it worked. You know, a hundred years later, I mean, if you said wealth creator in 1880, people would assume you meant workers. If you say wealth creator now, people will just assume you mean a capitalist. It really was effective. But then the problem is, all right, if you get rid of this notion of production as gives us meaning and work gives us meaning, well, how do you justify work? And this is my argument, that, that product, it was possible because of this very patriarchal definition of what work was. Since they didn't see it as caregiving labor, um, as ultimately caring, and, and caring labor was kind of made invisible, because that was mostly women's labor, then, you know, if factory labor becomes a paradigm, that's why it became so easy to say, oh, you're just a bunch of robots, you're no different than the machines, you're just sitting there going like that all day, that's not real, you know, you're not creating anything. Um, okay, so, so, so then they have to justify work, so they go back to the theological idea of work as suffering. You know, well, it's okay, because, you know, you're, you're, you're validating yourself as a true adult human being, and this goes, also goes back to very old theological ideas of the Middle Ages. You know, work is supposed to be suffering. So, so, in fact, anything you get out of your work makes it less valuable, to the point where people seem to feel it's perfectly okay that, like, the more your work benefits other people, the less you get paid, because you should, you know, benefiting other people should be enough. You're getting something out of it. Come on, you want money too? Um, all right, so, so that's another another aside. But, but the point of this is that, that people are trapped in this contradiction because on the one hand, you know, people feel that, yeah, work should be miserable and that's what makes me a good person that I can go home and enjoy my consumer toys, you know, like the gospel of wealth says I'm supposed to. But at the same time, they just feel there's something terribly wrong if they're being paid to do nothing all day. It violates, I think, a basic principle of human nature that people, you know, want to be useful in some way. They want to feel they're affecting the world in a positive way. It goes back to psych basic human psychology and child psychology, you know, where you first kind of figure out that you're a being autonomous in the world around you and you realize you can have a pro pro predictable effects on the world around you. There, this German psychologist around the turn of the century figured this out. There's this moment when babies like, figure out that you know, if I move my hand like this, I, I can move a cop. If I do it again, the cop will move in the same way. Wow. <laughs> and babies, there's this feeling of this amazing joy. We're like, wow, it just happens the same way every time. This is great. I can have predictable effects on the world. And, and, and that's the, it's not like when you stare in the mirror, the sort of Lacanian idea. It's actually when you do that, that you realize that you're a thing and then you're different from the world that you can have you know, predictable effects. It's called the pleasure at being a cause. The idea is there's that sense of joy and realizing you can transform the world, which is at the fundamental, the, the sort of basis of our very sense that we are a self. And if you take that away, since psychologists are kind of assholes and they always say, all right, now what'll happen if we glue the cup to the table and, you know, and see how the baby reacts to that? You know? And sure enough, the baby freaks out and um, you know, first gets really upset and then goes catatonic and say, aha, you see, that's, that's, that's um, where all the neuroses come from. Um, so, so my argument is this is why people in bullshit jobs are so unhappy, despite the fact they're being paid to do nothing and they, they should be totally happy as a clown. 
them, right? No, uh, they're, they're often miserable. It's, it's exactly that. They're foiled in their most basic feeling that they're there to like transform the world around them. Uh, they're like that baby with the cup glued. I wouldn't move. Um, all right, so, so <laughs> there was a point of this. Oh, yes, uh, caring labor. Uh, so, so you have these people trapped in these pointless jobs, and they're miserable, but, but they feel there's a contradiction. On the one hand, they accept that work should be suffering. On the other hand, they feel there should be some social value in what I do, and, you know, like, uh, and they're very frustrated. And this contradiction is, is what I think leads to this sort of explosion of where people say, but this is ridiculous. And I remember looking at the, the We Are the 99% Tumblr page when I was... Uh, involved in Occupy, where we had this web page where people who were too busy working, basically, to take part in the occupations very much, would, you know, write these little signs explaining their lives and situations and why they supported the movement. And almost all of them, it was the same thing. They said, I wanted to have a job where I was actually doing good for other people. Well, at least I wasn't hurting them. Um, you know, I wanted to do something where I, I provided some benefit, health, education, social services. I took care of people in some way. And... But you know the way this society is set up, if you want to care for other people, if you want to be nice, then they'll pay you so little and put you so deeply in debt, you can't even take care of your own family. This is totally wrong and unfair. This is the sort of, sort of primordial sense of injustice that I think really drove the movement more than anything else. And um, so, so I thought, well, okay, why don't we reconstitute our sense of, of value, our sense of what a working class actually is. You know, go back and do it right this time. You know, everybody says things like, oh, well, you know, the factory's gone, the working class doesn't even really exist anymore. How can you even talk about a working class? As if somehow it's carefully designed androids that are driving the bus or fixing the sewer main or, you know, painting your house or something like that. I mean, um, it's, it's bizarre, this assumption that factory work is the only real work. No, actually, most working class work has always been caring work. That's all. Um, mainly because most people are women, and that includes working-class people. But, but nonetheless, I mean, even male work has been much more of that than, than we, we recognize. So let's reconstitute our sense of value around that. So I ended up proposing that instead of production and consumption, why don't we have caring and freedom as our basic terms um, for a new revolutionary movement? This isn't completely answering your question, but it's kind of getting to it. Yeah, we need to have a movement which is a working class movement which re conceives the working class in a totally different way. Working class is the caring classes and always have been. And, 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 and actually, you know, that's true psychologically. They always do these tests that um, the, the poorer you are, the better you are at reading other people's emotions. Have you seen this? Yeah. Um, basically, rich people are assholes. You know, they're, they're, they're oblivious to the world around them. They don't really understand when people are upset or happy or anything like that. Um, so the poorer you are, the more the better you are at sort of picking up and, and what other people are feeling, kind of because you have to, right? Uh, rich people get poor people to do that for them, basically. Anyway, um, okay, so, so, so if we imagine them as caring classes, I decided... What, what, what definition will we have of caring labor? Um, there's a million ones have been proposed, but I, I say, thought, well, how about freedom? Uh, how about caring labor is work which is designed to maintain or enhance another person's freedom? 
And, and what is freedom? Is freedom is self-directed activity, as often defined, like play. You know, like well, something which is not constrained that you do for its own sake. Well, you know, what's the paradigm for caring labor? A mother and a child, right? And and why does a mother take care of a child? What is a well because they love them. But 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 what does a mother take care of a child so the child can do? Mainly play, right? Well, the, the sort of primordial exercise of freedom. So this should be our paradigm. Instead of production and consumption, play and freedom. Um, and freedom is, uh, I mean, uh, caring and freedom. And freedom is exercised above all in, in the ability to play. That's really powerful. And we're running out of time, but I do want to mention really quickly, because you made a really interesting point when we were talking separately. Um, so on the one hand, I, th I think it's important to acknowledge that you're, you're inspired by the International Wages for Housework movement. Oh, yes. And yeah. as a critique of patriarchy and, and some of the things you've been saying. Um, but I also would like if you could really quickly talk about your, the universal basic income. Yes. Because that plays a role, in, you think, in the ways that we can free ourselves from bullshit. Um, yeah. But inside mm -hmm. here, um, you made a really good distinction that it's not just any universal basic income plan. And I think yeah. that's important, especially in Silicon Valley, where you have a lot of bullshit mm -hmm. plans yeah, yeah. for universal basic income. So perhaps you could tell me, or tell the folks yeah. what you're telling um, me. A lot of people, uh, there's a lot of different versions of, of basic income. I, I, I think that you know, if we want to get rid of bullshit jobs, you can't do it directly. You can't legislate them away. You know? And in fact, any kind of bureaucratic um, attempt to address the problem is just going to exacerbate it. You're just going to create new bullshit jobs in the government trying to identify bullshit jobs in the private sector. You know, like, that, that's not going to help. Um, so I thought, well, what will be useful? Um, maybe reducing working hours. But even that would be hard to do about it bureaucratic interference at this point because so much work has been casualized, has been made into contract work, or you know, people like me who get paid by the month, but you know, we're basically supposed to work all the time. Everybody work sort of overflows the boundaries of, of when you're supposed to be working and how do you regulate that without again creating a new bullshit bureaucracy. So so I thought, well, basic income is probably the best and most obvious way to do that. And the Corbyn people are going to try to convince me otherwise they're going to say four day week. I'm going to talk to them when I get back to England. But you know, um, I, I like basic income because it's a left-wing anti-bureaucratic position, at least as I conceive it. Because you know, I mean, a large, just like a large part of, of stupid bureaucratic bullshit jobs in the private sector are basically there to make rich people feel good about themselves, like a huge number of bullshit jobs in the public sector are basically there to make poor people feel bad about themselves. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, 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 you know, are you really looking for a job hard enough? Are you really a labeling of that person or are you not? Are you just pretending to be, you know, I mean, they're monitoring every aspect to see if you're worthy of whatever crumbs they want to throw to you. And those guys who do that, you know, like, I mean, I got a lot of people writing to me about government positions who would say, like, you know, just how miserable they were doing this. It's, it's fascinating, actually, because, you know, when you look at these guys and you say, how can that person live with themselves, you know, um, demanding that homeless people give them three forms of ID or they're going to kick them on the street again, you know, this kind of thing. Well, the answer is often they can't. Um, they're really unhappy. And a lot of them wrote to me and said that, you know, they, they're tortured. They, they're doing it just because they can't get any other job. Eventually they quit. They feel terrible for years. Okay, so those guys, 
you know, don't need to be doing that. They, they, if we have basic income, they can all quit and form a jug band or yeah. you know, go, <laughs> you know, restore antique furniture. I don't know. Yeah. Try to set the world record for having sex at an advanced age. You know, I don't care what they do. <laughs> um, I mean, they could, you know, it'll be better than what they're doing now. Mm. And, and the other thing is nobody's going to keep jobs like this if they don't have to. But the left and right thing is important because, you know, there's different versions of, of basic income. There's a kind of the way I think of it is, is a basic income being used to expand or to contract the zone of unconditionality? Now, if I live in the UK, we have the NHS. The NHS is it's based on an unconditionality principle. If you're sick, we don't care who you are, we don't care why you're sick, we take care of you. Um, no questions asked. And of course, that cuts out a lot of bureaucracy. You know. um, but. It's, it's very efficient, but it's unconditional, and that's, that's why people like it. There's just no qualifications at all. And it's just a principle that you need it to get cared for. Okay, we don't want to get rid of things like that. And, and the right-wing version is to substitute money to start privatizing all that kind of stuff. So ultimately, it's about contracting the zone of unconditionality, whereas universal basic income in the left-wing version is meant to expand the zone of unconditionality. We want to keep all that stuff, but we also want to add the idea that livelihood is is part of the zone of unconditionality, that nobody should have to worry about the basic means to exist. And, and that's why it's unconditional. And it might seem stupid to give money to people who are already rich, but it establishes the principle that everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, we don't care, we don't care what you, who you are, what you need, you get at least this. If you need more, then you know, if you're disabled or something, well, yeah, sure, we'll also give you other things you need beyond that. Um, and you know, so you keep the, the, the free health and the free education. You're probably going to want to have how rent control, too, if you want, to, want this to work. But um, you expand the principle of unconditionality. And, and what this is basically going to do, if you give people enough to live on, it's going, and we could talk about where the money comes from, but, you know, most people who complain about that don't understand where money comes from, which is, you know, banks make it up, right? Uh, but that's, that's another story. Anyway, um, all right, so, so you expand the zone of unconditionality to give people a base um, for, for life, and then you say, all right, it is up to you to decide how you want to contribute to the world. So if you think about it, it's like creating human freedom, I mean, in the, in the zone of the economy, in a way that we've never even really thought about. And, and as in so many ways, you know, we think we believe in freedom and democracy, but we don't really. Because if you present this to people, you know, what it would really be like. Well, you know, what if people, we had real democracy? You know, a lot of people's immediate reaction is, oh, oh no, you know, I mean, oh, like juries having full power, they won't they form lynch mobs and, you know, uh, they've done terrible things. I mean, not like judges haven't. Um, so, so there's all these instinctual fears of democracy, of freedom that we have installed in people that we need to overcome. But, you know, this is what it would mean. It would mean, Everybody gets to decide for themselves what they want to contribute to the world. That's economic freedom. That's real economic freedom, not the kind of Milton Friedman version. Now, the usual objections to this, you know, aside from the obviously bogus moral objections, you can't give people something for nothing. Well, you know, if, if you really believe that, you wouldn't believe in inheritance, right? Um, but, all right, so aside, let's just ignore that one. Um, and anyway, you're not giving people something for nothing. You're just not specifying what the thing is. You're just leaving it up to them. Um, you're assuming that life is actually worth something. 
no matter what you do with it. All right, so, so then the argument will be that, well, you know, people are lazy, they're just gonna sit around, watch TV, you know, nothing will get done. Well, that's pretty obviously not true, and I think that the existence of bullshit jobs and the fact that people are so miserable doing them is itself one of the strongest pieces of evidence that so that's not the case. Because, you know, here we have millions of people who actually are being paid lots of money to do nothing, and they're really unhappy. You know, so if that shows anything, it's that people actually do want to do something with their lives, and given the choice, they will. And, and that, so then the next argument is going to be, okay, sure, people will want to do something with their lives, but what's the guarantee they're going to want to do something that other people find useful? I mean, how do you know the streets won't fill with like bad poets and you know like annoying street musicians and you know people who believe in alien conspiracies and you know hollow earth theories and you know crazy perpetual motion device of designers and you know and 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 it'll be a disaster, right? Okay. I mean, clearly that will happen to some degree, but but. <laughs> On the other hand, remember the numbers, 37 to 40% of people are already doing nothing, right? <laughs> so how is it gonna be worse than it already is? I mean, we've already got a completely stupid division of labor where most people are doing nothing of any use to anybody, and they're miserable. At least the guys with the perpetual motion devices are gonna be happy, right? I mean, they're gonna be doing the stupid thing they wanna be doing, and anyway, some of them, like, you know, imagine one of them actually does come up with a perpetual motion device. I mean, you know, if 10,000 are crazy, but one's actually sane, <laughs> We got a perpetual motion device. This is great. You know, like, you know, like 10,000 of them are, you know, like terrible musicians, but like, or not terrible, but, you know, mediocre musicians, but one of them is Miles Davis or John Lennon or something like that. It's like, great, we got our money back. Um, similar, like, you know, similar to the, one of them Shakespeare, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so it's really... A, they'll be happier. B, there won't be nearly as many of them doing like oh, stupid things. And some of them will turn out to do something amazing. You know, so I, I think the system will be far more efficient ultimately than the system we already have. I just want to thank you for, uh, well, when people say there aren't alternatives, you say <laughs> bullshit. So thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.